Thanks, Josh. I think we're going to have to get rid of this uh, painting here because that glare is just uh, blinding. But uh, what I want to do this morning is uh, take a look at Luke uh, chapter 15. It's a very familiar parable to you. It's the, uh, what we know is the parable of the prodigal. Uh, I would rather say to you it's really a parable about grace. And uh, I want to take a look at that uh, uh, parable. My serious journey with this parable uh, started in the early 90s. And uh, I was introduced to Henry Nouwen's book, The Return of the Particle, which is an interaction with this uh, Rembrandt painting, which uh, is in the Hermitage in uh, St. Petersburg in Russia, and the text... And what Rembrandt does, and what Nouwen does, is uh, interacts with the text, and uh, Rembrandt, uh, in pictorial form, displays God's grace. And Nouwen just expounds it. And so, uh, after I'd read the book and I started talking about it, we were living in West Los Angeles. I pastored... uh, Uh, on the west side of Los Angeles, uh, sort of the border of Santa Monica and West L.A. And uh, I spoke about this. And uh, a friend of mine uh, sent to Paris and got this print. And uh, it went immediately in my office to remind me that uh, every time somebody walks into my office, my responsibility is to be the father to whoever comes. That I'm to be the parent. And uh, it uh, has changed the whole way I think about pastoring. So this morning I'd uh, like to uh, open this text up to you and uh, I hope you'll follow along with me and uh, get something out of it as we uh, explore God's Word. David Livermore is a... uh, teaches at uh, Michigan State University, and he teaches cross-cultural intelligence. And he has a course in the Great Courses series on uh, cross-cultural intelligence. It's a wonderful course. Uh, it's, it's helped me immensely. Some of you are trying to work out my accent. It's a mongrel accent. I'm an Australian, but I've lived here for 40 years. So... Uh, Anybody with an educated ear probably says, I'm from New England. Um, and, and, and that's probably right. Although people have thought I'm from Texas. I figured they've never been to Texas. Uh, there's been all sorts of crazy places that they've uh, thought about it. South Africa gets close. Uh, New Zealand, of course, gets close. Uh, the New Zealanders will never own an Australian. They're too refined and we're too wild uh, for, for that. But... Livermore teaches this class, and what he does, which is fascinating to me, in his opening lecture, he takes this parable. Now, this is a professor of cross-cultural intelligence at at Michigan State University, and he tells this parable. And he wants people to understand something. When he 
he cites a study by Mark Powell where Powell asks a hundred people from the West, why does the prodigal end up in the pig pen? What do you think their answer is? You know the story. Why does why would a hundred Westerners, people from America, Australia, Britain, Canada, New Zealand, Germany, France, why would how do they answer? Come on, talk to me. Talk to me. Bad stewardship. He squandered everything on wine, women, and song. His lust got the better of him. He was a reprobate. That's why we, when we think of prodigal, that's what we think, somebody who squandered everything. Okay. Now, when Pal asked a hundred Russian pastors, why did the prodigal end up in the pig pen? What do you think they answered? Think a little bit about Russian history. Think about the story. And they answered because there was a famine in the land. Now, are they right biblically? Yep. The Westerners were right. He squandered his living. The Russians are right. There was a famine in the land. If you talk to people from Britain, they'll always talk to you about the war. Think about every British film you see. I'm an Anglophile. I love British television and British movies. How often the war is a theme. You talk to Russians and it'll always be about the hardships and the famines that occurred. And that's what they locked in on in the story. He then went to East Africa and he asked a hundred East Africans, why did the prodigal end up in the pig pen? Do you know what the East Africans said? Because no one helped him. Is that in the story? You bet you it's in the story. What do you get out of that? We all hear stories in the context of our culture and our life experience. Jesus told stories because he knew they would hook people. And then he could drive home the truth to them. That's what we want to do this morning, is tell a very familiar story. A story that you may tune out on because you think you know it. And I want to suggest to you, you don't. Fully. And we get to learn from each other as we explore this text together. One of the great things about being in a small group is that you all come with different insights. And in a church like yourself that is multicultural, you all bring different experiences and insights. And with the authority of the text and with your experience, we get to explore what, uh, what God is doing in his world and how he uses his word in your life. So this morning, what I want to do is divide the story into three sections. I want to look at it from the youngest child's perspective, 
the oldest child's perspective and the parent's perspective and ask you this question. Who are you in the story? This is a marvelous painting. And if you look at it closely, the hands of the father, one is male and one is female. And you just see this picture of grace. And so this morning, uh, will you uh, listen to God's word as uh, we take a look at it? I'm going to read just the, uh, the first part of the story and look at it from the youngest child's perspective and then explore it from then on. In verse 11, Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. That's how North American heard it. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. That's the way the East Africans heard it. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his sons and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. Often we miss the nuances of this story. A son asking his father for his inheritance was a, a pretty big deal in the ancient Near East. What he was really asking, he wanted his father dead. He wanted uh, no part to do with his family. He wanted his dad dead, and he wanted what was his, and he wanted to go off and make his life. In the ancient Near East, the youngest son got a third of the inheritance. There's a law called the law of primogenitor. The oldest would have got two-thirds. The youngest would have got one-third with two sons. And the father is now asked to put the will into effect. If they were wealthy, he probably had to have the estate assessed and a third was given to his son, which meant that the oldest son automatically got the rest of the estate and the father lived in an honorary capacity on the estate from then on out because the estate was now there oldest brothers. When cultural anthropologists talk to people in the, uh, in the Middle East, 
and in uh, more agrarian cultures and ask them what they think about this story and what would happen to a son who asks this, everybody in the Near East will tell you the village would kill him. He would be gathered and stoned, the young son, because he is rejecting community, he is rejecting father, and and the only punishment would be death. That's shocking for us to hear. But that's how radical this story was to Jesus' audience. And so the son does what sons do. He's eager to prove that he's a better man than his dad. Every man in this room sort of knows that struggle. I think I can do life better than my dad. And I'm going to try and prove it. He takes his third and he goes to a far country and he learns all the hard lessons that you learn when you do that. He learns that uh, he's got friends when he's got money. They're fair weather friends. He learns that everybody will want to be around you when you're the life of the party. But when you don't have anything, uh, things change. And he realizes that what he was looking for, he was searching in all the wrong places. And it gets to such a place that he's bankrupt. And he's got nothing to fall back on because he's a foreigner. Family's a long way away. And he's alone. And he attaches himself to feed somebody else's pigs. And while he's feeding somebody else's pigs, he comes to this incredible realization that he's a person, not a pig. That's what it, one of the things he learns in the pig pen. That he's a person and he's not a pig. And he starts to think, you know, if I go home, I can be a servant and be better off at my dad's place. So, why don't I go home and offer to be a slave to my son? to my father. I've sinned against heaven. I've sinned against you. I'm no longer be worthy to be called your son. I'll be a slave. As a kid growing up, I heard many a sermon where somebody said, now that's repentance. I want to tell you, there's no repentance in that. There's just no repentance in that. God is not interested in slaves. He's only interested in sons and daughters. See, the son was going to go home on his terms. Not God's terms. Not his father's terms. His terms. And when you you understand that, 
you get this very different picture of this whole story. Now, in, in his book, says that um, we all have these conversations with ourselves. You know, we always think that somebody who talks to themselves is a little strange. How many of you talk to yourself? All the time. In fact, most of us have a perpetual conversation going on with ourselves. Listen to what Nowen says here. I am keenly aware of how full my inner life is with this kind of talk. In fact, I am seldom without some imaginary encounter in my head in which I explain myself, boast or apologize, proclaim or defend, evoke praise or pity. It seems that I am perpetually involved in long dialogues with absent partners, anticipating their questions and preparing my responses. I'm amazed by the emotional energy that goes into these dialogues. You see... I am, yet, I am not yet able to fully believe that where my failings and sins are great, grace is always greater. Can I tell you, every pastor, every Sunday morning, has all of these conversations going on in his head. How's the message going to go across? You know, so-and-so may be upset at this point. So how do I say it so as they're not offended? You know, somebody looked at me cross. What did I do? And that list goes on and on and on and on. But all of us struggle with this whole concept of grace. We, we love the idea. But most of us think we have to do something, don't we? We struggle with this. And so the son in the pig pen has some recollection, but he's going to go home on his terms. I'll go home as a slave. And I'll, I'll work my way back into my father's favor. Is that repentance? Not in a biblical sense. He couldn't handle the fact that his dad may just open his arms up to him. Who are you in the story? A lustful son or daughter who wants no part of your family and you run off to a far country and you learn a hard lesson or many lessons? When Jesus tells this story, there had to be sons and daughters who were sitting there who were identifying with the younger. Maybe not to the extreme of the story, but like all good storytellers, you tell the extreme to get the hook. And then Jesus has another character in the story. It's a, an older sibling. You find it in verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, but when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, and so he called for one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. 
So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fatted calf for him. You see, the hardest conversion is often with the person who stays closest to home. Look at this character. You know, he's, um, he's obedient, he's dutiful, he's hardworking, he's thrifty, he's law-abiding. We'd elect him mayor of the city. He'd be on the city council of the village. This is the responsible one. And the loss, his lostness is so hard to see because of his goodness. Goodness in small g. But when he's confronted with his father's joy over a brother who'd squandered his living with prostitutes, he can't handle the father's joy. There's a darkness that erupts inside of him. Maybe you know that darkness. A proud, unkind, critical person emerges. A heart that feels it's never received its due. Look at all I've done. Look, what, look at him. Look at me. A heart that calculates everything and is full of second guessing. A heart that feels misunderstood, neglected, even rejected. See, in terms of the culture, you know who should have hosted the party? The older brother. Culture and expectations would have said he had to be the MC of this celebration of the return of his brother. Some of you who come from Asian cultures will understand this. But that was his job. And all that was in his heart is just resentment. Now and is quick to point out that joy and resentment cannot live together. Have you, have you learned that in your own life? That if you have resentment, joy can't live in your heart with resentment. They don't make good bedfellows. And, and this story is just laden with the older child's perspective. The perspective of him is being resentful. You may want to use another word. It's hard to concede that this bitterness, resentful, angry person might be closer to ourselves in a spiritual way, than the lustful younger brother. Thirty-five years of pastoring, 39 years of ministry, I've encountered a lot of older brothers and sisters. I've watched many uh, a church person 
be crucified by the people and their spirits being hurt deeply and damaged. I've watched many people shamed. And it's so hard to get at this because resentful people often do all the right things. It's why it's hard to penetrate their defenses. It's hard for them to receive grace. Because the externals look so good. But deep inside, there's a darkness and a pain. And you hear it in all of the words But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you is the way the NIV translates it and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me squat, is what he says. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you throw a party for him. How come? Remember, Jesus tells this story in response to why he hangs out with publicans and sinners. Now one asks the question, how do you stop being a stranger in your own home, in your own church? in your own community. Because his observation, and I concur with it, is there is a lot of people like this. And he says there's two things that will correct this or help correct this. Start the transformation. Grace and gratitude. The older brother never stopped and thought anything about what he had. He had it all. The farm, the servants, was all his. It was his to enjoy and use. And all he could think about was the mistake his dad had made. Probably two mistakes. One of which he was the beneficiary of, dividing the property, so on. And two, throwing a party for her son who's returned. There's not a parent in this room who wouldn't throw the party for a kid who comes home. And there's grace. that the Father loves you and wants you. That there's nothing you can do that will make God love you more and there's nothing you have done that will make God love you less. That's grace. Do you believe that, church? Do you know how hard it is to live in that? In a culture that rewards 
effort. And that was the oldest son's struggle. Deep down, that hadn't enfolded him. There's nothing I have done that will make God love me less. All those crazy thoughts and imaginations doesn't, won't change the way God loves me. And there's nothing I can do that will make God love me more. I would accept his grace. Who are you in the story? Lustful, younger child? Resentful, older child? But there's a, a third character to the story. It's the father. You'll also notice that the parable doesn't have a happy ending, ever after ending. You don't get a resolution where the older brother comes around. It's left hanging. But we're introduced to the parent, to the father. You see, it's easy to identify with one of the two kids. What about the dad? What about the parent? It's, it's what we all want somebody to, to do for us. But it's hard to identify with. But the father says, when he sees his younger son returning, verse 22, he says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they all began to celebrate. The dad sees his son coming on the horizon, wraps up his cloak, and he starts running towards him. No Middle Eastern father would ever run to his son. his child. The child had to come to him. How many of you had parents who expected that of you? But this dad, he does it different. And then in response to his oldest son, who's full of resentment and staying outside of the party and throwing a hissy fit, he says, my son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Here's what I've learned about being a parent and a dad. You always have to live with deep pain over your kids. There's no pain like the pain of a child's mistake. You live with deep pain. He had to live with the pain of one whose lust got the better of him and rejected him and went and squandered everything. 
and he had to live with the pain of a son who stayed home and who really didn't want any part of him either. He was just lost in resentment. Father had to welcome both kids home and in. He goes running to one and he throws a party. And to another, he steps out of the party and he pleads with him to come in. He pleads with him to understand his heart. That's incredible pain. This father loves to celebrate his kids and not keep score. The reality of this um, text hit me many years ago on the south side of Chicago when I was was speaking in African-American church deep in the south side of Chicago. In fact, I think I was the only white face in the congregation. And a, a friend of mine who'd been an attorney in Chicago had started this church. And it was an incredible experience. We got to this text. And, of course, African-American congregations talk to you all the time. Yeah. And there'd been sort of this underlying thing going on, help him, Jesus, you know, to a white pastor. You know, Just help him, Jesus, to speak. And I got to this part. And I said, look what happens. This father puts a robe on his kids. And the hanky started waving. Because the robe is a sign of honor. And then I said, and he puts a ring on his finger. And they're going, oh, preach it, preach it. Because the ring's the sign of power of attorney. It's stating you're a son, not a slave. And by the way, the son never gets to offer to be a slave if you look at the text. The father interrupts him before he ever gets to make that offer. Because God is only interested in sons and daughters, not slaves. And then he puts shoes on his feet. And I kept this line. And I said, remember the spiritual. All God's children got shoes. And the place erupted. And I started running down the aisle. All God's children got shoes. And they're going, this honky got some soul. (laughs) All God's children got shoes. Because shoes are the sign of freedom. I've spent a lot of time in my life in Africa, been around a lot of barefoot kids who walk miles to the well bare feet. Shoes, freedom. And then he throws a party to say that the child is owned and celebrated. You're a son and daughter. I got to throw a few parties for my, my kids over the years. Every time we throw them, 
not only for their birthdays, but for events in their lives, graduations and those sorts of things. What I'm saying to the community and to them is that you are loved, enjoyed, and you are owned in the right sense of that word. You're mine. I want you. I love you. And that's what happens here. The father throws that sort of party. You see, we're all going to be children. True? But we have to consciously choose to be the parent. Not everyone's going to be a parent, but every parent has to consciously choose to be that parent. See, what this story is driving us to is that parenthood is the ultimate goal of the spiritual life. To be the mother and father in this story is the ultimate goal. God doesn't want us to stay as children. He wants us to move to being parents. That painting in my office reminded me that every time somebody came in to see me and to talk with me, my role was to be a parent like this parent who showed grace and kindness and goodness to everybody who walked in the room. Didn't matter what they've done. Didn't matter who they are. It didn't matter if they were the wealthiest person in town or the homeless people who lived right around the corner from our church because the church was located on the river. It took 10 years for us at Sun River to get people to understand that it wasn't those people, that we had a responsibility to be the parent. to the franchised and to the disenfranchised. And the father throws his hands wide open. A robe, a ring, shoes, and a party. That's grace. They're just pictures of grace, aren't they? Powerful, powerful. You see... Who are you in the story? The child? The lustful child? The resentful child? Or the father who wants to throw a party? Being a parent isn't going to be easy. A spiritual parent. It's going to be full of grief. Every parent in this room knows that you got to learn you learn to live with grief. Grief is part of the cost of loving, isn't it? It just is. And no one can break your heart like your kids. As a pastor, no one can break your heart like 
the people you've poured your life into in a congregation, those of you who have taught Sunday school and led Bible studies and been involved in mentoring people and you've poured your life into and somebody makes a, a U-turn, you know that pain. But being the dad, being the mom, just means you learn to live with that. Remember, we follow somebody who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. One of the things that I get a chuckle about in our evangelical culture is we, we do all of these seminars to teach parents how to do it all right. Can I tell you, Jesus couldn't get it right with 12 disciples. And he was perfect. One of them betrayed him. Part of being a parent is that you learn to live with grief. But that's the wonderful thing about grace. Second thing is you just learn to, to live with a, a lifestyle of forgiveness. That's what the dad had to do with the, the lustful son, didn't he? You know, I think if it had been me, I would have welcomed him home, but I, in my heart I'm going, this kid's going to have to prove himself. I was talking to my neighbor on Friday, and, um, and he'd just come back from a celebration of his son. His son had, been, had just gone through a detox program and for a year. And uh, they'd gone down to the graduation of it. And, you know, it just looks good. But he, he was a former school administrator, but he couldn't help but share with me, I just hope this lasts. He'd been hurt too many times. But he showed up for the graduation. forgave and it's going to forgive see the spiritual parent is going to grieve and they're going to forgive and can I tell you something else they're going to do they're going to be generous they're just going to be generous if if you've truly been touched by grace then you're going to be grateful and you're going to be generous. You just have to be. There's a certain generosity for somebody to come up in, in that outfit this morning and, and, and not be self-conscious about it all, but to, to get your attention. That's a generosity of spirit. One of the things that I've loved about your pastor and uh, the way he talks about you is about your generosity. Generosity of spirit. The way you are to him, which allows him to be that way to you. It's such a healthy model. He talks about my input in his life I've been far more the beneficiary that a young, hip guy would want to hang out with an old guy like me. And I, I'm just thrilled what God's doing in his life.
can't wait to see what happens uh, in the years ahead. But see, this dad wasn't lost in his resentment. He wasn't lost in the hurt that the sons had inflicted. He was just generous because he knew God's grace. Now one makes this point. People are not looking for another peer or another playmate. They're looking for a parent who can bless and forgive them without needing them in the way they need a parent. Do you catch that? People are not looking for another peer or playmate. I'm so tired of my friends who are trying to be friends to their kids instead of being their parent. And the kids aren't looking for their parents to be friends. They're looking for their parent to be a parent, to grieve, to forgive, to be gracious, to be generous. They want somebody who can bless them and forgive them. Not pleading with them, but blessing them and giving to them. You see, that's grace. The Lord bless you and the Lord keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. And God himself be gracious to you. The Lord lift you up and turn his face towards you. And God himself give you peace. Isn't that what you want? Isn't that what you need? That's what the story's about. It's about a father who does this. You see, it's the memory of a good parent that always brings a child home. It's the memory of a gracious parent brings a child home. Who are you in the story? My answer to that is, it depends which day you ask me. Some days I can be a lustful old man. Some days I can be a resentful old man. By the way, it's one of the biggest things you've got to fight the older you get. But what God's really wanting is this parent who, whose arms are out to bless and to give. What happens when Northside becomes a place full of spiritual parents? That impacts the community in a way that's hard to measure. But it changes the community. See, God just is interested in us being gracious, grateful, and generous. Don't you want to be that? Don't you want to be that person? I trust you, you will. His grace is sufficient for it. Let's pray. Father, in the uh, quietness and the stillness of these moments, as we let your word uh, flood over us, Lord, I, uh, 
I come to thank you for your graciousness. Help me to live in the light of it, to be so deeply grateful for it that it just spills out in in the ways I interact with other people. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness. Help me to live in the light of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.